during that last verse, I was thinking about how much we're going to enjoy singing to the Lord when we get there. In Haiti, I once did the dirty work of slathering wet cement on bricks, then stacked them upon a foundation someone else had laid. By and by, my friends and I built what we mistook for a church. But that is something only God can construct. Remember that old game, here's the door, here's the steeple, here's the church, where are the people? The temple is a spiritual architecture assembled from all our broken pieces. And yes, it takes a master's hand. Beatitudes and holy living shape us into the righteous bricks required as we show mercy, give to beggars, become peacemakers, lend like we mean it, and love our enemies. It's simple, really. We just need to be perfect, like the Father. Then we will fit firmly together upon the sturdy foundation the Lord became for us on Calvary's tree. The scripture passage for this morning, the first one is 1 Corinthians 3, um, verses 10 through 11 and 16 to 23. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. In verse 16 to 23, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. And the second passage from Matthew 5, 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, Go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. 
You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Foundations are funny things. <clears throat> Here in Southern California, uh, what passes for foundation is usually what the construction folks tell me. And those of you who know me know that my knowledge about constructions is limited to whatever the construction folks tell me. Sometimes they tell me stuff just to throw me off scent, uh, and it's wrong. But since neither John nor Craig are here this weekend, I might get a pass. I don't know. Here in Southern California, though, our foundations are usually what they call slab on grade. A few inches of concrete holding up an entire house. Because if the earth shakes too much, everything falls in. And the slab on grade is easiest, most efficient, especially if you're planting row crops of houses. And ironically, it's probably one of the best ways to build houses for earthquakes. That's what they tell me. Could be wrong, could be right, I don't know. Not a construction guy. When you go back east, you find foundations that are far more intricate. Uh, all kinds of designs for foundation, uh, foundations. Grand basements and, and lots of uh, support to hold big Victorian houses. The principle, though, of foundations, I'm told, again, this is all secondhand, this is all hearsay, I could be wrong, but the higher you want to build a structure, the deeper your foundation wants to be. You have to dig deep in order to go high. Skyscrapers have deep basements and sub-basements for that very reason. It seems fitting for us to read these passages today and reflect on the essence of what is our foundation as the people of God. What, what holds us? What anchors us? What keeps the place together? And so as we follow the lectionary in this epiphany season, we, we begin looking at 1 Corinthians 3 as we've continued to read through this beginning part of Paul's letter to a dysfunctional church and Paul talks here about building what I call the Casa de Cristo. In, in the Muslim world, they have the Dar es Salaam, the House of Islam. And if you learn how to respect the Dar es Salaam, the House of Islam, you can have incredible interfaith dialogue. You can have incredible conversations about 
who Jesus is, who Isa is, and what Jesus means to you. And But it's within the context of respecting the house you're in. I was asked this fall to speak at Payap University in Chiang Mai, Thailand. Um, I'm supposed to do a whole morning on a Christian basis for peacemaking. Yeah, I could think of about a hundred other people who would be better at that task than me. Uh, but I was the only one in Chiang Mai that day, so it it fell to me to uh, to do it. And I I built off of this idea of the Dar es Salaam and the Casa de Cristo. How do we build the house of Jesus, the house of Christ? And it begins here in First Corinthians three. This this language about a, a foundation. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. And someone else is building on it. Paul recognizes that he's not even the general contractor. He's just one of the subs. Getting the work done that the master builder has sent to him. Somebody else is going to build on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. That verse, 1 Corinthians 3.11, was the signature verse of Menno Simons, one of our spiritual forebearers in the Brethren in Christ Church. It was Menno Simons who took a discouraged, defeated, almost dissolved Anabaptist movement and reunited them in the Netherlands. His brother had been killed as an Anabaptist reformer. The Anabaptists persecuted both by the Catholic Church and the Reformed Church. And Menno was a Dutch Catholic priest in Friesland, spending his days, as he said, playing cards, drinking beer, occasionally saying mass. That was his, that was his life. But when his brother was killed, things crystallized for him. He, he explored why that happened, why his brother, who was more dissolute than he was, would become this religious fanatic, this Anabaptist, this part of what they called Dishwarmer, the swarm, these religious crazies that were infecting Europe. What do we, what, why would his brother have done that? As Minnow began to contemplate his brother's life, he did something he had never done before. He picked up the New Testament and began to read it. And as he read it, his heart was convicted by the words of Jesus. And he said, I will, I will never build any other foundation than the one that's already laid, which is Christ. And for the next 25 years, the rest of his life, Menno Simons patched together this Anabaptist movement that had fallen into disrepute and disrepair. And while the bigger group is now known as the Mennonites, and I guess we can thank God they weren't called the Simonites, uh, but these Mennonites are also our spiritual forebears because it's out of a Mennonite revival in the Susquehanna River in the 1770s that the brethren were born. 
And so Menno Simons is our spiritual forebearer who looked at this verse and said, it's Jesus that's the foundation. There is no other. It's only Jesus. It can't be Jesus and. It can't be Jesus and my reason, Jesus and my experience, Jesus and my opinion. It's just Jesus. And while that sounds easy, it's profoundly difficult to make Jesus the foundation of our lives. But on that foundation, Paul says, a temple is built. Now, I have always had issues with 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 because it's always been presented to me as, well, a spiritual temple means you've got to exercise. And I kind of fail that test. <laughs> That's not what Paul's talking about, I would assert, not just self-defensively. I would say Paul's talking about how do we construct a life? All of our lives reflect God in some way. That's what temples do. They reflect our understanding of God. You walk into this temple, you realize that our understanding of God is that God is the creator of families. That, that there are no great aspirations for us as the people of God at Madison Street Church other than to be the family of God together. You walk into a great Orthodox cathedral St. Andrew's here in town and you realize that their whole purpose for gathering, their whole understanding of what the faith means is very different. That it's connected to history and tradition. That it's connected to the lives of those who have gone beyond. That it, that it challenges us to seek out the mystery of the faith. Not a lot of mystery in this building. We, we figured it differently. And it's not to say one is right and one is wrong. It's to say we, we come to that construction of the temple with different perspectives. But we all do it. Because the temple identifies us. It's about our identity. And it clarifies for us that which we think is holy, that which we think is sacred, that which we think God has especially endowed us with. And so whether we talk about ourselves in the plural as a faith community, the church, or as individuals, Paul says that the foundation of Jesus is for the purpose of building the temple of our lives. The temple that gives us identity and calls us to holiness. And it's from there that Paul is finally, for the last time in 1 Corinthians, pivoting to wisdom. The core theme of these first four chapters of 1 Corinthians has been, how do we understand wisdom? Do we understand it like the Greeks as an intellectual exercise? Do we understand it like Judaism? Do we understand it as signs and wonders? Or do we understand it as Jesus? Is he our wisdom? And... 
Paul comes back to that theme one more time and he says, don't deceive yourselves. There are these different centers of wisdom, but Jesus is our wisdom. And that means none of our factions, this problem that 1 Corinthians had, the problem that the Corinthian church is dealing with, these this Paul and Apollos and Cephas, these factions, they don't matter. Again, it's it, it, Paul's not chastising the church. He's not saying bad church, naughty church for having factions. He's saying they don't matter. Because in a church that is built on the foundation of Jesus, that is built as a temple, shaped by the identity of Jesus and led towards holiness in Jesus, then all of our factions conflate into following Christ daily in life. Paul shows us how to build the Casa de Cristo. To build it on the foundation. And so it's important that we look at the words of Jesus and try to understand what he was about. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, about halfway through the sermon, the end of chapter 5 Jesus identifies the purpose of love. He's been talking about love. He talked about four pillars of love. We looked at that last week. And in verses 38 to 48, he, he clarifies, he crystallizes what love does through followers of Jesus. And he says two things. He says, first of all, it endures evil. The ancient world was was shaped by the Code of Hammurabi, 3500 B.C., a Babylonian, Sumerian uh, uh, emperor creates the first written legal law code, and he limits that which you could do to retaliate. It's the first time that ever happened. Usually if somebody did bad to you, you could open up uh, a can of... of Whoop. <laughs> you thought I was going to say it, but... And, and do whatever you wanted to do for vengeance sake. Hammurabi created the phrase an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He limited our capacity under the law to seek vengeance, to seek justice. What Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is he redefines that whole concept. He says, look, in, instead of getting the satisfaction of an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, what you really need to do is surprise your oppressor. You, you need to shame them, surprise them. You need to organize active surprise in the face of organized oppression. Jesus transforms the eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth to the words in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't resist an evil person. They slap you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand your coat over as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away. 
from the one who wants to borrow you, borrow from you. This is incredibly difficult stuff because we are seemingly hardwired to seek satisfaction. And Jesus' words are push us in another direction. And I wish I could say, yeah, it's really easy. You just trust the Holy Spirit and it all comes together. But the world is a lot grayer than that. The world is a lot harder than that. But the principle of the love that Christ calls his people to is to overcome evil by enduring it. That resistance is endurance. A long obedience in the same direction. Jesus then pivots to say, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor. He's quoting from the Torah, the core of Jewish faith. Love your neighbor. And by extension, then, hate your enemy. That's not in the Torah. It's just what people said was logical. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Finishes chapter 5 with uh, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we scratch our heads and say, what? Perfect? Not me. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. None of us are perfect. Why would Jesus set that as a standard? Part of it is a lost in translation kind of thing. Telios, the word in the Greek here, means completion, finished product. I have a wonderful set of bookcases in my house, courtesy of this congregation. And I've told this story before, but I'll tell it in a new light. When it was time to put the end cap piece on, John Alfred and Greg Jones stayed about eight hours after everybody else left to try to get it perfect, to finish it perfectly, to complete it. And it looks, to my layman's eyes, perfect. John and Greg left going, well, I guess it'll do. We should maybe, we could have squared this a little bit more, but that's what perfect means in the New Testament. Not that we are without sin, that we are utterly perfect, but that we have completed, that we have finished, that we have come to the place of surrender. And Jesus says that is found, that completion, that perfection, that finish is found in the love of enemies. Nowhere else. You want to be perfect? It isn't about the prayer you've prayed. You want to be perfect? It isn't about how wonderful your devotional life is. You want to be perfect? It isn't about how nice you are to one another at church. You want to be perfect? Love your enemy, Jesus said. 
And the biggest problem with that for us in the evangelical church in the 21st century is that we won't cop to having enemies. <laughs> oh, not my enemy. I don't like him very much, but not my enemy. No, no. Sorry. We've all got enemies. We've all got people in our lives that want to do harm. And the question is, how will we love those people? Doesn't mean we surrender to it. Doesn't mean we let them get away with stuff. Love isn't passive. But how do we love our enemies? That's the acid test to a complete and full life as a disciple of Jesus. I wish it were something else. My life would be a lot easier. Your life would be a lot easier. But that's what Jesus said. So that's what we got to deal with. So how do we create a foundation for a Jesus-following community? What does that look like? How, how does a Jesus-following community base its life, ground its life, anchor its life? It begins, first of all, by acknowledging that Jesus is the foundation we seek. Which sounds like one of those Sunday school kind of answers until we start actually applying it to our lives. And then it becomes harder and harder and harder. But it begins with acknowledging that Jesus is our foundation. It grows by building our lives into temples, by understanding that temple language is not about being buff, but it's about reflecting the kingdom of God as we experience it and understand it. And that means a life of seeking wisdom, a life of discernment, a life that's not caught up into factions who follow their leader blindly, but a culture of conversation, a gathering of people who, under the Holy Spirit, read the Word together and acknowledge Jesus as the foundation and build that into their lives. We create a foundation for a Jesus-following community by becoming an enduring community where we commit ourselves to stubborn love because that is the only way we become an inclusive community. Inclusivity, the great goal of the 21st century modern middle-class, liberal-thinking person only occurs as we are an enduring people. We can't be inclusive if we aren't willing to endure. We become exclusive when the endurance fades. And so, as the old hymn says, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. So some questions for us this morning. How do we build our lives on Christ as our foundation? What sort of temples do we seek to be as we follow Christ? How do we demonstrate our endurance 
in order to become inclusive. One more thing. It was Menno Simons who said, true evangelical faith cannot lie dormant. It clothes the naked, comforts the sorrowful, shelters the destitute, it serves those that harm it, it builds, it binds up that which is wounded, it seeks those who are lost, it becomes all things to all people. May God grant us a foundation that we can build that kind of true evangelical faith upon.